So this week, I wanted to start with something very quick. It's something that I saw in the news and Google's DeepMind AI has achieved this amazing achievement. So they've used AI to basically discover 2.2 million new materials. So these are inorganic crystals, so they're not naturally occurring. So not going to pretend to understand all the the details, but adding in extra particles and things like that. Anyway, this 2.2 million new discoveries they found has basically brought science 800 years into the future because scientists can do it now, but obviously it's it's a more painstaking process. So they've basically, this AI has uncovered enough materials that would have taken scientists 800 years to find. Can you just imagine the innovation that that's going that's to That's amazing. Yeah. It's the type of thing I used to dream of doing when I studied science. Look, I just wanted to cover that because I, I thought that was amazing. But why don't, we, uh, why don't we dive into your idea? Sounds good. Sounds good. So what if I told you that in Saudi Arabia, there is a mobile app run by the government called Najim? I wouldn't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so this app acts as an at-fault intermediary for car accidents. So when there's a car accident on the road, someone is sent out through this app that is an employee of the government technically to complete an on-site assessment of the accident. And their job is to determine who was at fault at the time of the accident. Okay. So it's it's like an an independent body that, well, it's obviously government, but an independent government authority that will go out and determine this? Yeah, that's correct. So they go out and... They decide then and there who <laughs> whose fault it was. And then through this app, the users can then lodge all their insurance and, it's, and it has a bunch of other you know functionality. It's tied into all of their government apps, right? So I'm suggesting let's create this app for the UK or Australia, but on a commercial model. Okay, go on. So the market need for something like this in the UK, I'm just going to speak about. There'll be benefit for the people who are having accidents. So a quick fault resolution could actually reduce friction between people and they don't have a fight and you know it's, it's not a lengthy process you're not badgering with the other person trying to take photos of cars all that sort of thing right but also it's a good thing for insurance companies because what it will do is it'll expedite insurance claims and then reduce the disputes because the insurers won't have to be going through going through court battles going through all these things to prove who did it did this person do it and it will allow them to give more accurate assessments, right? Because at the moment, it's sort of in the UK and Australia, these insurance companies are really doing the assessments and, and then working it out amongst themselves, you know, who's who's at fault. So if, if I can just, just try to fully understand. So when there's an accident, and so are we talking minor accident through to major accident? Car accidents, yeah. Yeah, okay. So even, even if somebody just kind of ding someone or if, you know, it's peak hour traffic and they just bang it to the back of them and they pull over to the side. So you're, you're talking about at that point, this independent authority or assessor or whatever would go out they would do the assessment, determine right there and then who's at fault, and then that will kind of yes. get logged. Okay, because so the process now is that that will happen. The two people will exchange details. Then they go about their merry way. They both individually log an insurance claim. Then the insurance will go through all that process. Then they'll send someone out. And obviously, it's it's all in hindsight because they've obviously missed the actual accident. So they're trying to piece it together from information and witnesses and stuff like that. That's exactly right. So it's just like it's just ridiculous that it's the way it's done currently, right? And you kind of it's like can't even think of how many times they've messed it up and just everyone just couldn't do anything because it's your insurer and the insurer holds all the power. So, but also how many times has that benefited the other person, right? You know, wrongfully. So it's quite interesting. Or well, how many times have you not received your car insurance payout, right? 
because it was, you know, deemed your fault or something. So let's just talk about market size here. The amount of people in the UK that make insurance claims for car claims is about 2.4 million per year. And so that's the minimum amount of customers you'd have for this service, right? Because it doesn't include all the other people with insurance who don't make claims. And there's another stat, right, which is quite complicated to explain. But basically, if your insurer makes a claim in the UK in particular, I think Australia as well, and they say, oh, this is how it happened. You're not going to get paid out. And what you can do is go to the financial ombudsman and uh, you know make a claim against your insurance company, right? And then say that they got it wrong. So what we'll do here, we'll be avoiding all of those claims by helping the insurance company, right? Because we'll be on site. It'll be much better proof to your point. It won't be in hindsight. So another interesting stat on this is that if you make a claim against your insurance provider that they got it wrong, you can make this to a sort of government authority, the financial ombudsman service in the UK, right? And this service is basically brought in by the government currently to work out if the insurance is telling the truth about the claim and whether they are paying out the right person, right? So in the UK, there's about 11,800 of those per year claims against insurance companies for making the wrong decision. So that will sort of go out the window as well. So we're solving that problem as well with this service. I think there's a couple of things here. First is the time. What's the average time to process an insurance claim? It's probably a month, two months. You know, So it's a fair bit of time. Obviously, you're bringing that down to almost zero, You know, five, 10 minutes, however long it takes to get them out there. And obviously, the payout time might be a little bit longer. I think you're right with disputes. It would definitely reduce that because you've got the evidence right in front of you. I don't think it will completely eradicate it because there's still the opportunity that the other party will dispute the claim, even though the evidence might be right there in front of them. So I think that's really the value proposition. There's the two things there. It's saving you heaps of time and to drastically reducing the chance of a dispute. Absolutely. And how would we implement this? We need some sort of mobile app, just like in Saudi Arabia, where they've got the mobile app and they've got all the features, the GPS, the real time, the reporting, the photo uploads, all of these things will be built in. Maybe you can start integrating local traffic and you know law enforcement databases, really make it like a sophisticated app. All these things, I think, are run by the Saudi government. So you know they have them all integrated, right? I think it'll be a different story in, in the UK and Australia. We have the classic problem of interoperability, right? Mm. So, But you could also enhance it and you know improve on it with adding in the recent developments in AI for pre- preliminary assessments and that sort of thing. So how would we actually execute this? You need that app, but then you obviously need the network of responders to go out to all the crashes and at the scenes, right? And that's where your massive costs are going to be in the labor and the equipment of those vehicles and of the people to get out there and so forth. That's probably the starting point. Really, you just need that network of responders. And, you know, you talked about the technical side of it being costly and obviously all the integrations and all that. But I think to start with, I mean, you could just have a phone number. I mean, it could be an app, but it could just be a phone number and then they come out straight away. I think that's that's the thing. And maybe mm. there are there are companies who are... I don't know. I was going to say you could probably use a company that's already doing something like this is already out on the road all the time that maybe this is an additional service that they provide. You could potentially almost do like a an Uber style model where you're just, you've got a bunch of, let's call them contractors, but you've got a bunch of contractors who can assess and they're qualified and they've got all of that. So it is official and maybe it is more on a, you know, if you're close by then you know, head out there. But I think if Definitely. you can establish that network, that would be the first step, a relatively easy step from a technical standpoint. Absolutely. That's a great MVP. Totally agree with you. That's a great way you could test the idea as well. I'm biased. I think it's already validated. Let's just talk about you know, a potential revenue model here could be subscription model, 
you could pay for a subscription to the service or you know or it could be sort of like the reverse model where the insurance companies pay you for some sort of data or service that you're you're giving them i think you're saving the insurance co- so yes you're saving the user the time that's really what you're doing for them you're saving the time and you're reducing that dispute for them though there's no cost necessarily to putting an insurance claim obviously depending on the outcome they may have to pay but there's no cost to that at the moment also they're at a time of distress and so i think making them pay for a service if you're going to have a subscription fee then it's one of the i mean obviously it's an insurance i suppose but obviously you're having them pay or paying at the time of distress which also makes bad things worse but i think the opportunity here is with the insurance companies because you are saving them two months worth of work which is a whole bunch of dollars from productivity from employee and staff expenses etc and you're reducing the disputes which again saves them time i think this is a much bigger opportunity or a much bigger time and dollar saving for the insurance company so i think this is where you can get the insurance companies to pay for it totally agree totally agree and i think we're definitely on the same and, page there and you keep the service free for the users and so they're going to appreciate and and see that value proposition even more yep i'm on board with that only other final concern is just you know the legal and regulatory you know within the uk and you know around data privacy and just collaborating with you know the legal side of that but i think it's too detailed to get into now so i'm happy to sort of end it there yeah, I, I love this. It's almost like uh, roadside for insurance. I love it. Yeah. All right. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and take it off the road and into the supermarket. <laughs> what I want to start with, so uh, parking and then walking in through the doors. I want to talk about this trend. We, we talked about this trend back in episode 20 where you talked about it. This trend towards being green, environmentally friendly, the growing trend towards eco-friendly packaging and things like that. We know obviously climate change is becoming more critical and urgent, but the thing is it's an overwhelming problem, right? It's such a big problem when you have a problem like that it's natural to avoid it or just stick your head in the sand or just think you know i can't make any difference and then if we think about consumerism and buying products i've seen so many surveys where the overwhelming majority of people would buy something that is more environmentally friendly but when it comes down to it it always is price and convenience that wins out over over the environment and so in reality while say 90 percent of people might say they want to buy environmentally friendly really only about 10 percent actually do so yep Yeah. And what I want to do is find a way to make it a bit easier. So in 2009 in Australia, government introduced something called the unit pricing code. So it's basically the the labeling system in supermarkets predominantly that shows you these standard units of measurement to help make those comparisons between products. So regardless of the size or the brand. So let's say you had three bags of coffee, you had a kilogram bag for $17, 250 gram at $9, and then a different brand of a kilo for $19. So what you can do then is compare the cost per 100 grams, right? So regardless of the size, regardless of the brand, you've got that price comparison based on that standard unit of measurement. All right, so that, that makes it really easy to save time and money because before that, and I don't know if you used to do that, but you'd get your phone out or your calculator and you would work out, okay, well, if I get the kilo bag for 17 or the 250 for $9, what's better? So this yeah. saves time and you money. See, it's just on the label and you just look at it and you're like, it's like 17 cents a kilo or like 20 cents a yep. kilo or whatever. Yeah, so, I look at that literally all the time. Right. Like, so I, it makes I'm it, so actively looking at that. Yeah, makes it so <laughs> yeah. much easier. I, I'm, clearly, I'm clearly trying to be a bit of a penny pincher. Yeah. <laughs> so that, but that's, that's what we're saying. Like price and convenience is always the main determinant. It, or Not always, almost always. Right. But so what I want to do or what I think should be done is to introduce a unit code for emissions. So that'll help consumers compare and make assessments on these environmentally friendly products. So it's probably for every single product. So it doesn't just need to be groceries. So it's not just for supermarkets, every product, potentially even for services. But what you can do is you can compare the emissions for every individual product across its supply chain. 
So from manufacturing to packaging, storage, distribution. So basically it will say this product, this product has emissions of, I don't know, one one gram of CO2, right? And you can compare that across all the different products. And so what I think the opportunity here is, is an independent body or an authority that really does two things. So it does the compliance and the licensing, auditing companies for that eligibility to be part of this program and the ongoing access to that kind of comparison tool. And then also providing tools and services to those brands and those companies to help them actually estimate or measure their emissions. And then obviously the other part is the promotion and the partnerships. So to promote the program as a whole to consumers so that they know it's a thing and also manage relationships with companies like suppliers, retailers, wholesalers, things like that. Imagine the label, every single label, and it's it's opt-in, I suppose, to start with. That's where the licensing and compliance comes in. A brand would voluntarily opt-in to have this estimate done or these measures done. And then you'd be paying, I suppose, for that opportunity to have that on your label. Well, I'm quite impressed. I think it's a really good solution to something I've, I've been considering as well. And I think it'd be very disruptive. It would disrupt a lot of like the marketplace in, in the shopping center. Because what if your favorite product is like, you know, the worst, yeah. uh, you know, carbon emission and that would be visual and you're like looking at it and you're buying, especially here in the UK, uh, we have this thing called Tesco Express. It's basically a quick little express store that they have like all these lunches. They call them meal deals. I think I've talked about them before. Mm. And you go in and you get like a sandwich and a drink and then a fruit bar or something, right? And it's like this deal. And the shops are packed, like packed all the time with people buying these things. And I feel like I can just imagine people in there going to reach for something that has this carbon, you know, emissions rating on it and then being like, oh, you know, everyone around me is sort of judging me. I'm grabbing the, you know, the carbon emitting, you know, product right now. It's like, maybe I'm not, maybe I should make the right choice, right? It would just put that pressure on them. You're right. And I think the other thing is it gives you the opportunity to make that trade-off. So you've got the price comparison and you've got the emissions comparison. And so now you really can make that informed choice about what you want to buy. To your point there with the price and the emission comparison, I think it would be very interesting to find out if low price does indicate high emission or vice mm. versa, because I don't think that assumption is true. I, I'm not sure if you know the expensive ones will actually have lower emissions or higher emissions. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't think it'd be a straight line either. I think it depends. There's so many factors that go into it. But so, yeah, you're right. From the consumer standpoint, they've got this ability to make a more informed choice. There's the peer pressure of people are watching what they buy from the company point of view. So from the brand. And so this is targeted at the brands, by the way, not the supermarkets per se, but the brands who have the product. So for them, sure. you know, it because this is voluntary, it shows that demonstration towards decarbonization. And maybe for some, this is not forcing them, but it's, it's giving them that opportunity to actually do that full measurement. So from an internal operational standpoint, I suppose, if their goal is towards carbon neutral or net zero, this gives them the tools to start measuring all of their products over the whole supply chain. And then you can take this further as well. So think about a supermarket. You could work with the supermarket and basically you've bought 10 items and you've got a total of all the emissions for those 10 items. And then you've got the opportunity to an offset. So at the end, it might say, well, all this costs 90 bucks and it's also cost, I don't know, 100 kilos of CO2. Now, 100 kilos of CO2 is only about three bucks. So you could easily offset and the charities do this well, I think. And McDonald's, I know here do it where you just add that little bit extra to round up. But I think you could do that here where you're paying that little bit extra to offset the emissions from the products that you've just bought. In terms of the overall concept, it's it's been done before. So in Australia, we have the Australian made logo, 
uh, which is used for products that go through a bunch of criteria and eligibility, but obviously it means they're Australian made. So those products that have that symbol, that they've been made here. The Australian National Heart Foundation is another one where they had the red tick, the Heart Foundation tick, which means that if it's got that, if that's got that label, then it's a healthier option. I saw there's a company in Sweden actually called Carbon Cloud. It's a climate intelligent company and they're doing something similar to this where you can calculate the emissions for a grocery list. But basically you have to take a photo of the the barcode. So it's it's a little bit more manual and I'm not sure how many people would would kind of go through that, but it's a good idea and it's on the right way. So I think this is really going into, into more detail and more integration with the companies. Sorry, is this like a QR code? sort of thing it's an app that uses the camera right they should just make it a qr code i mean <laughs> uh yeah seems like an easy solution but <laughs> we, we talked last week kind of along these lines with the the qr code for the future of receipts yeah you're right that qr code could have all the information and when you scan it it has all the emissions information in it as well i think that's brilliant and i'm just gonna say something completely irrelevant here but on that qr code thing I've noticed like a massive increase of advertising businesses with QR codes. I actually just got advertised today for Cadbury doing a promotion. I'm not sure if it's in Australia, but they're doing it in the UK here where they're doing like at bus stops. It's like send a secret Santa from wherever you are of chocolate. And it's like basically they're just putting all these advertising things around with the QR code and you scan it at the point of wherever you are. And so you're online and you send like a, a secret Santa, like an un- anonymized gift to someone. But yeah, anyway, just a good use of QR codes. No, Q- QR code is the uh, the the underrated or the, the underdog. It's been around for a long time, but it's just, it's finally getting its time in the limelight. <laughs> but yeah, Cadbury, great example of a company that should be putting on your carbon and yeah. emissions rating service here. And there's a couple of others that I found. So this in Europe, they have two things called the EcoScore and the NutriScore. EcoScore compares the impact of food products on the environment. So it gives a score from A to E and NutriScore is, is about nutrition. So they're probably a little bit closer as well. And McKinsey & Co has written a great article about this around decarbonizing groceries too. So we'll add it to the show notes for that. So from a feasibility standpoint, because I think this is a big idea. I mean, ultimately, I think this is a is a not-for-profit business. And we'll come to the dollars in a minute. But I think it's a big idea in terms of what it can catalyze and what it can do to, to push consumers and companies more towards considering emissions within their purchase. But I think the actual auditing and measuring of emissions can be challenging. There's three different levels of how you can measure emissions. So scope one, scope two, scope three. So if we use a grocer uh, as an example, scope one is the direct emissions from the grocer's operations. So everything they do. Scope two is the emissions from the electricity and the heat that they purchase. So how was the electricity generated that they use? And then scope three is everything outside of that. It's basically the rest of the supply chain. So it could be agriculture, food processing, waste, transport, the storage of goods. It's all of that. So scope one and two are easy to measure because obviously they relate directly to the brand and to that grocer, but they only account for about 7% of total emissions. So the 93% is in all the supply chain. So I think there are challenges in terms of how you audit and measure that, but that stuff is coming along as well. From a viability standpoint, so if you think about the business model, I've already mentioned a couple. There's the Australian-made logo and the heart tick. And so the Australian-made logo, they charge an annual fee. So anywhere between 300 bucks and 25K per year, depending on the number of sales. It's now used by more than four and a half thousand businesses, thousands of products. And in 2023, they brought in six mil revenue with about 500K of profit. It's not too bad. It's not the biggest unicorn in the world, but it is um, doing an important thing. No, that's, yeah, I love I love the branding. I mean, is the Australian-made thing, is that government run no. or is that... No, no, that's private. I, yeah, I think I think all of these are private. The heart tick license is the heart tick is the other one that I want to mention. That's run by the National Heart Foundation. So, 
these are not-for-profit bodies. They probably have um, government uh, as almost as a member or as a partner, but they're they're private as far as I'm aware. The other one, just quickly on the heart tick. So their fee was anywhere between 50K and 300K. It did close in 2015, not because of the license fee. They've moved to a different model. But when it closed, they had more than 2,000 products carrying the tick across 80 food categories. That's good adoption, but I've heard horror stories about that. Terrible companies paying money for the for the credibility, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's where I think your eligibility checks need to be, they need to be tight so that you're only letting through companies. And in, in ours, you know, we're talking about the emissions control. And so maybe they have to have passed through our assessment before they're eligible. You've just given me an idea, Dan, because I mean, the, the gaping hole in the problem here is that Every shipment's going to be different, potentially. This whole thing is relying on the supply chain being the same for every single delivery of, of products across a range mm-hmm. of different stores. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of assumptions being thrown in here. I think to do this properly, and I think the technology does exist, you'd want to maybe look at a blockchain sort of thing, but like a live a live recording of every sort of shipment right from factory to store, live track the ships if you're importing stuff. And there is some, I can't remember the name of the company now, but there is some, definitely some companies doing this where they're doing checks at every single you know point for all deliveries around the world that are really making these ledgers of, of transactions across the world well documented. And I think this is something that would help something like this. Live tracking is, is definitely part of it. You kind of brought up a good point. I think you will have to estimate some of this. You can't adjust for or account for every single variable. I think you can account for them, but there needs to be some estimates. What do you mean? I kind of brought up a good point. It's a great point. (laughs) Very, very well done, Patrick. Um, (laughs) No, but I think, yeah, we don't have the technical know-how or the time to go into all the complexities of how you measure it, but I do submit that that is probably the biggest challenge of this. But I do think this idea in general is, is a really good idea that can push us forward and really catalyze that move towards, yeah, that price versus environmental comparison in store. Absolutely. Yep. I think I think it's not too bad. Yeah. Would need a lot of work and, and potentially a government. I don't know. It's hard. You know, non-profits, it almost needs the government behind it to, to yeah, actually really get something like this done. It needs some kind of authority, but I do think it should be independent as well. I think that's it. I think that's the pod. Cool. See you then. <laughs>